I noticed we have some children here, so I thought maybe I could start doing a little something extra for the kids. And once in a while, I discover adults pay attention too. <laughs> Just a little arrow, which direction is it pointing? That way, to the right, very good. It's pointing to the right because I want to encourage you to do the right thing, go the right way, and in particular to be right with God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people always did right, went right, and were right? It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? But that's not the way it is in this world. There are people who are doing the right thing, going right, living right, but there are those who have left the path of God. The earth doesn't always turn right because there are some people who have left God's plan out of their life. You might say they've taken the low road instead of the high road. Now, with this, we have some confusion in our world because there are some people who say, well, don't you think everybody's really on the high road? Don't you think all roads lead to heaven? I mean, one way or another, we're all going to end up up there. Have you heard that kind of thing? But is that what the Bible teaches? No, it says there's a way that's right and there's a way that's very wrong. There's a way that leads to everlasting life, and there's a way that leads to everlasting torment. So if we want to be on the way that leads to everlasting life, we need to make sure we're going right. And of course, the ultimate right decision is to give your heart to Jesus Christ. You do that, you'll never go wrong, and I hope that's something that we all have done. And now let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. 1 Kings, chapter 17, we're going to start with verses 8 through 16. Or I should say verses 8 through 16 will be our text. It happened in the hill country of Missouri. It was an area where there had been mining operations in the past. There were many holes in the ground. Some of the holes were shallow, no more than 6 to 10 feet deep. Other holes were deeper, much deeper. Some 75 feet deep, some more than 100 feet deep. A man was hunting at night. As he hiked around in the dark, he stumbled into one of those old mining holes. As he fell over the edge, he reached out in desperation and managed to grasp the root of a tree that was sticking out over the edge of the hole. Fearing he had fallen into one of the deeper holes, he hung on for dear life. As he hung there in the dark, the poor fellow yelled and screamed for help. None came. His voice grew hoarse and his grip grew weak. Finally, he could shout no longer, nor could he hold on any longer. So he said his last prayer and released his grip. Expecting certain death, he fell. He fell a total of six inches <laughs> and landed in the soft dirt at the bottom of the hole. It was one of the shallow holes. He was fine. Apart from a racing heartbeat and blood pressure through the roof, there was no problem. He was safe and sound, trying to calm himself down and feeling quite foolish. The next day, he would have a strained voice, a sore arm, and a sore shoulder from hanging on so long when he did not really need to be hanging on at all. Now, as far as I know, that story is true. It is also true that for many people, in their relationship with God, something similar is happening, something similar to that story. And that is people are hanging on to things, maybe many things, when life would be so much better if they would just let go. 
They're grasping tightly to that which they do not really need and thereby failing to experience what they really do need. At the heart of this is the concept of submission. In the New Testament, on numerous occasions, Christians are told that we are to submit ourselves. We're to be submitted to God, submitted to his words, submitted to one another, submitted to government, submitted to those for whom we work, submitted to God's plan for the marriage relationship, and overall submitted to God's will. Fundamentally, submission involves yielding control. Yielding our hold on things and accepting the will, the knowledge, and the rightful position of others. In the spiritual realm, one of the things that submission means is there are blessings we cannot experience until we surrender pride and our own desire to take care of and bless ourselves. There are places in life where we must let go to find real spiritual success. Before us today is an Old Testament story, an event from the life of the prophet Elijah, which powerfully illustrates this truth. If we really want to live as God wants us to live, there are things of which we need to let go. Look at the words of 1 Kings 17, verse 13. This is not where the story starts, but it's where we start today. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Our consideration of the story and the lesson it brings begins with this, a reason. And as I said, our story actually begins back in verse 8 and verse 9. So let's return to that part of this text. This is where the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, here's the situation. More than a year earlier, Elijah had made an announcement to wicked King Ahab that as a judgment against the sin of Ahab and the sin of the nation, it was not going to rain. Following that announcement, Elijah had gone into hiding. By God's direction, he had isolated himself in a canyon area known as Kareth. There was a small stream of water at the bottom of the canyon, and birds had supplied him with food to eat. So he had water and he had food. But eventually, that stream at Kareth dried up. Obviously, Elijah could not live without water. He was facing the excruciating possibility of death by thirst. That's where today's story begins. If the prophet stays at Kareth, he won't survive. This is when God says to him, and again you see it in verse 8, go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now Elijah surely would have been grateful to know he had another place to go. God had a plan for him, and it must have included water. Nevertheless, this instruction from God also must have caught the prophet by surprise, for he was not told to stay in Israel. God was not providing him with help by way of his own country, his own place, and his own people. Zarephath was a Sidonian city, and the Sidonians were Phoenician people who, as a general rule, did not worship the Lord God of Israel. King Ahab's wife was named Jezebel, and Jezebel was a Phoenician. Because of that, there was a political alliance between the two countries that kept the nations at peace, 
But in spite of the fact that, that you couldn't say the Sidonians were exactly enemies at the time on the political level, as far as God was concerned, they still were not people with whom an alliance should be made. God did not want the paganism and the idolatry of the Sidonians mixed in with the people of Israel. God wanted the two nations separate. Yet Elijah was told to go to Zarephath, which was far into the realm of the Sidonians. Which puts before us the question, why? Why was this the direction for him to go? Why not somewhere else? Why not find a place in Israel? There are at least two possible answers to the question and one definite answer. The first possible answer is a practical thing, and that is the judgment of drought had been placed on Israel. It was happening because of the sin of Ahab and the fact that the people of the nation had followed him in that sin. This drought was not a judgment against foreign nations. As we continue with today's story, we'll see the drought had carried over and it did impact Sidon and the people there were having hard times too, but it's very likely the drought had come later to Sidon than to Israel, which means Sidon was in a bad situation, but it would have been worse in Israel because that's where the drought started. So Elijah in the need for water, it's going to be easier for him to find it in a foreign land not being judged by God than to find water in a land being directly judged by God in the form of a drought. The farther Elijah would get away from Israel, the more likely he would be to find water. So one possible reason for Sarephath was that, water. The second possibility had to do with personal safety. The king of Israel was not happy with Elijah. If Elijah stayed in Israel, there would be the chance of someone recognizing him and telling the authorities where he was. If you ever watched the cop and robber movies, you know how the bad guys always want to go where? Mexico or South America. They want to go somewhere where the people who pursue them won't follow, and typically that means get to another country. Well, Elijah was not a bad guy. He was a prophet of God. He was a good guy. But even so, he needed to lay low. And Zarephath, which was a place in another country, would be a great place to lay low. So those are the possibilities, but here is the certainty. The expressed reason for Elijah's journey is found in verse 9. We are told God had commanded a widow there to care for him. Now listen carefully and make sure you get this. Apart for, from his need for water, apart from his need for safety, there was someone in Zarephath Elijah needed to meet. This person would help him. And until God told him so, Elijah did not know this person existed. Without God's leading, he would never have known of her existence. Yet there was a person whom he needed, whom God wanted him to meet. Now, we'll say more about this in a moment. But first, let's make it personal. Have you ever stopped to think about people in your life who would not be in your life had God not led you down some surprising paths? you ever stop to think about how God has blessed you by allowing you to connect with people who literally have been part of changing your life? Now, maybe not everyone can relate to this, but I certainly can. Had I not felt God's call to attend a small Bible college in northern Minnesota, I would not have met the young lady who later became my wife. When I went off to Oak Hills Bible Institute, I did not know a person named Mary Elgersma existed. Now we've spent the last 43 years of our lives together. And by the way, in case you're trying to figure it out, that her last name was Elgersma, a good Dutch name. 
I think I've shared this with you before, but when I first met Mary's dad, he told me why Dutch people wear wooden shoes. It's to keep woodpeckers off their head. Now, that was the joke he told me, so don't blame me for it. But anyway, had I not come out to speak at a Bible camp here in the Black Hills of South Dakota, a camp with a strange name of Halawasa, I would not have met the people who eventually called me to be pastor of the Evangelical Free Church out on Rimrock Highway. And not only was that a life-changing experience for me, but a life-changing experience for many people. Apart from that simple invitation to speak at Halawasa, I would not have met a young man named Mark Crossman and developed the friendship that has put me in the pulpit of this church today. When I look back over the years, I see how my life truly has been changed by, by people I have met. And much of the time, until God orchestrated the meeting of these people, I did not have a clue that they existed and certainly had no idea how much I needed them. Well, concerning Elijah and his destination, it's an amazing thing that in the midst of massive drought, in the midst of political issues and spiritual upheaval on an international level, God's attention is focused on individuals who need each other. That's what we're seeing here at the beginning of the story. Sure, there were practical reasons why Elijah needed to head to another country, but at the heart of the situation was individual and personal need. This is a reminder of a simple yet infinite truth, the truth found in John 3.16, where we are told God so loved the world. To say God loves the world means God loves people. To God, people matter. To God, you matter. To God, personal lives matter. There was a widow in a place called Zarephath. She was not a celebrity. She was not a mover and shaker in the community. She was pretty much at the bottom level of society, but God knew who she was, and God knew that she and his prophet would be a blessing to one another, so God was putting them together. That's the reason, the biggest reason, why Elijah went to Zarephath. A second key consideration relating to our story is a request. With verse 10, if you'll take a look at it, you see Elijah arriving at the town of Zarephath, and at the gate of the town he sees the widow. Obviously, God's hand is on every detail of the circumstance. He just gets to town, and, and there she is. Well, we're told that upon seeing the widow, rather than introducing himself, rather than explaining, hey, you're the one God has sent me to meet, instead of that, Elijah directly asks this widow to get him some water to drink. He specifically asks that she bring it to him in a jar and then, as she heads away to get the water, he shouts after her, While you're at it, get me something to eat. Get me a piece of bread. Now, to us, this seems strange. Some of you are already snickering about it. In our day and age, with the liberation and empowerment of women, if a man says, Hey, get me a drink, and while you're at it, how about some food? A woman is likely to say, Get it yourself. I'm not your slave. <laughs> Remember the old saying, get it yourself, Bob? Some of you remember back to that commercial. Yes. If a man is a complete stranger and makes such a request, a woman's likely to stick her nose in the air and walk away thinking, who does he think he is trying to get me to wait on him? That's our time and our culture. But things were different in the days of the Old Testament. In the ancient world, most of the time, if a man asked a woman to do something, she did it. It was a cultural expectation. So I don't think the widow was particularly surprised that a man would say, get me some water, and while you're at it, bring me something to eat. 
But something else was going on here. Look at the first 11 words of verse 12, and in particular, the eight words the widow says. The widow replies, as surely as the Lord your God lives. That's the start of her response to the request. Somehow, some way, she knew Elijah was a man of God. And more than that, she knew the God of Elijah, for she says, the Lord your God lives. This was a profession that Elijah's God was the living God. She lived in a land where people worshipped idols, idols made by sculpturing stone and carving wood. Yet she understood the difference between those idols and the true God. And this indicates that although a citizen of a foreign and heathen land, this widow was a believer. It may be her understanding was limited, but she knew the important thing. She knew the God of Israel was the living God. Now, how had she come to know this? We don't know. We're not told. But we do know God knew of her faith. And God was doing something in this circumstance to ensure spiritual recognition between the widow and the prophet. The widow didn't even know his name, but she knew Elijah was a follower of the living God, and she was willing to get him what he asked, but there was a problem. Look at verse 12. She says, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. How could she give Elijah something to eat when she was looking at her last meal? Her purpose in coming to the gate of the city had been to go out and gather sticks to make the fire that would cook her last little bit of flour. After that, after eating that last meal, she expected that she and her little boy would starve to death. That's what she was facing, and now the prophet is asking, get me a piece of bread. Well, what did Elijah say when she explained her dire circumstance? Did he apologize and say, I am so sorry. I would have never asked you to give me your last meal. I would never want to take from you and your son your last piece of bread. Is that what he said? Look at it carefully and remember that concept of submission we mentioned earlier in this message. Remember the idea of letting go? In verse 13, the prophet says to the woman, don't be afraid, do what I say. Feed me first. Afterwards, fix something for you and your son, for here's how it's going to work. And then verse 14 gives us an incredible promise. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Elijah's statement to her was, trust me first, feed me first, then God's promise will work in your life. Years ago when Mary and I were touring Japan, we traveled with a Japanese friend by the name of Fukai who helped us understand the language and culture. He didn't speak very good English, but... But he certainly spoke a little bit of English and obviously spoke Japanese well. Well, we'd been invited to a special meal, and we found food put in front of us that we did not recognize. For some strange reason, Mary decided she needed to know what she was eating. 
So she leaned over to Fukai and she said, Fukai, what is this? He looked at the food for a minute and then out of his limited grasp of English replied, it is beef. Trust me, I hope. (laughs) And we still laugh at the use of his words. Trust me, I hope. What did that mean? Was he sure it was beef or did he just hope it was beef? Reminds me of an old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy asked Charlie Brown a question and Charlie responds, yes, I think I'm absolutely positive. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. Are you sure you're positive or do you only think you're positive? You only think you're positive. You're not positive. With the text before us, there's no I hope or I think. Elijah makes an absolute promise to the woman. If you feed me first, you will have enough to eat. And then in a miraculous way, he tells her how she's not going to run out of flour or oil till it rains again, but she has to trust him in this. So is she going to do it? Is she going to feed him first? Will she trust this promise? Or instead, did she hang on and say, sorry, I got to take care of myself first. Sorry. I've got to feed myself and my son first. You know, I, I, I've, got, I've got to do what I can with what I have. I can't feed you first. What did she do? This brings us to the third key consideration from the story, a result. Maybe you've seen the commercials on TV, usually late at night, that pitch amazing products that apparently we cannot live without. These products are going to solve all of our problems and change our lives, and we can acquire them for the low, low price of just $39.95 for the next three months. That's right. Only $39.95 for the next three months, of course, plus tax and shipping and handling. Have you ever wondered why they present the price that way? Why is it, instead of saying $39.95 for the next three months, they just don't go ahead and say, this is going to cost you $118.25 plus quite a bit of tax, let's say, you know, $15, plus another $14 to pack it up and send it to you. And by the time you're all done, you will pay about $150 for this product. Why do they not say it that way? And the answer is because if you really understand the cost, you might not make the purchase. They don't want you to find out or even think about the full price, how much it's really going to cost you, until you've already committed yourself to the situation. Well, God doesn't operate that way. God puts the cost first and makes it clear that clear as to what's, what's involved, what's required. Rather than hiding the investment or the sacrifice that we're supposed to make, God empties. Emphasizes it. An example would be Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus Christ said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Is that the way to get a bunch of followers? Is that the way to get a bunch of people to sign up quick? So what was he saying? Was he saying, if you want health, wealth, and happiness, all you have to do is sign up to be on my team. Later on, we can discuss the expectations. No, he didn't do that at all. Our Lord, to the contrary, said, it's not going to be easy to follow me. You're going to have to give up some things you want. You're going to have to surrender your plans and desires. You need to be willing to identify with my sufferings. If you're willing to do that, good things will follow. But first, you must understand there is a price to pay. 
Well, that's the kind of message Elijah gave the widow. Essentially, he said, the miracle's not going to come first. Wouldn't it be nice if the miracle came first? But he says, no, the miracle is not going to come first. It's going to come second. If you want to always have enough to eat, give away what you have. Well, with simple yet wonderful wording, verse 15 tells us how she did react to this. It says she went away and did as Elijah had told her. The woman let go. She trusted the prophet and the promise of God. She fed him first. And what was the result? After feeding the prophet, she and the prophet and her son remained in her house and had food to eat every day for a long time. It wasn't her last meal. She and her son did not eat and die. Instead, they trusted and lived. They had a new friend. They had all they needed. They had a new situation that was far better than the old. And I say, listen, listen, listen. That's what always happens when people let go and let God do what he promises to do. When you let go and you let God do what he promises to do, the new situation is always better than the old. It's always best to trust and obey. We cannot pass by verse 16 without looking at it a little more carefully. Look at it with your own eyes if you have your Bible open. It tells us how the new food came her way. No matter how much flour she took out of her storage container, there was always more there. No matter how much oil she poured out of her jug, there was always more where that came from. The true and living God who can make something out of nothing, who can hang the world in space, gave her and the prophet a perpetual supply of food. It was like a magic trick, only it was the real thing. It wasn't an illusion. It was an actual miracle. The contents of the container and the jug kept multiplying until the famine ended. God is a God of miracles. So the widow gave up her last meal and ended with an unending supply of food. It was an exchange wherein she came out way ahead. And I say that's the way it works when we trust and obey relating to God's promise. We give him our rags. He gives us his riches. We give him our plans. He gives us his perfect promise, his glorious purpose, his everlasting position. We give him our hearts. He gives us his heaven. No one ever loses who lets go and trusts God. I remember as a little boy learning about African monkey traps. You may have heard about them too. As it goes, there's a place in Africa, maybe several places in Africa where it happens. But people hollow out large gourds which have narrow necks on them. They place trinkets in these gourds, trinkets that interest a monkey. The gourds are then positioned where monkeys come to look at the gourds. They notice them and they investigate. And out of curiosity, eventually the monkeys look down inside the gourds and they see the trinkets down in there and they want those trinkets. So they reach in and put their hands around the trinkets. Well, once their hand or their fist is around the trinkets... It's now too big. The way it's closed up, they can't get it back up out of the neck of the gourd. And people then walk over with clubs and hit the monkeys in the head and kill them. The monkey can't run away because the gourd is too big and heavy for it to carry. And sometimes they've literally chained these gourds down. But if the monkey would just let go of the trinket, well, then it could pull its hand out of the gourd and run away. But the monkey doesn't think of that. It firmly keeps its hand on the trinket and thereby loses its life. This could cause us to shake our heads and say, monkeys are so dumb. But they aren't. They're actually one of the smartest creatures out there. 
The problem is not a lack of intelligence. It's a creature-centered desire to hang on to what it wants, stubbornness, and an accompanying failure to evaluate short-term acquisition versus long-term blessing. And so it goes with humanity. We are supposedly intelligent human beings, yet how many people, like the monkeys, hang on to the trinkets of this world and are so attached to some sinful or foolish pleasure they will not enter into a right relationship with God? They give up eternal blessing in the attempt to hang on to things that in the end are going to destroy them. A missionary by the name of Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to get that which he cannot lose. When we open our hands and are truly willing to let go of the trinkets and treasures of this world, we find an abundant life which is eternally more wonderful than any silly thing we once thought we needed to keep for ourselves. It's strange how certain scenes can vividly remain in one's memory. A picture from years ago is still clear in mind. Kind of a strange picture because it involves a dump. But I'd used my old pickup to haul a load of trash to the local dump. And while there, I entered into conversation with a young man. I would guess he was in his early 20s. He, too, had brought a load of stuff to the dump. And for some reason, rather than heading back home, we both stood around by our pickups to talk. I guess that's just a thing men do at the dump. Well, I felt the opportunity to share the gospel with him. So I did so. There we were, leaning on the hoods of our pickups, talking about how to be forgiven, how to have everlasting life. I reached the place where it seemed right to ask the young man if he wanted to become a Christian, so I did so. I said, would you like to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now? Well, instead of answering yes, he posed a question. He said, if I become a Christian, well, I have to give up partying and running around. He further commented that he enjoyed getting drunk. He was aggressive to pursue sexual experiences. He didn't care much about respecting authority. So I explained to him, well, salvation is based on faith. It's not based on what you give up. But I also explained that part of salvation is surrendering, submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Inherent in what we must believe to be saved is that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. Salvation is not just a matter of getting some sort of spiritual insurance policy to keep us out of hell and putting that policy on the shelf. But rather, salvation is embracing the reality of who Jesus Christ is and welcoming that full reality into our hearts. The young man pondered this and finally said, I'm not ready for that. I'm young. I want to have my fun. I'm not ready to have anyone be in charge of my life but me. As we parted ways, I was both sad and amazed, sad to think of the destiny he was choosing for himself, amazed that someone would turn down forgiveness of sin, abundant life in this world, and the riches of heaven for a few years of foolishness. Over the years since, I've seen it time and time again. In fact, I think I've seen it more often than thinking or the choice that goes the other way. And that is, I've seen people choose short-term satisfaction, immediate pleasure, over long-term blessing and reward. I see people building their lives around what feels good at the moment, at the cost of infinite blessing, and at the cost of misery and pain yet to come in their earthly tomorrows. Well, that widow could have fed herself and her son one last meal. She could have said, nope, me first. 
It would have eased the pain in their stomachs for a few hours. Then starvation would have come. That's what could have happened, but it didn't happen. For when she trusted God and surrendered her grasp on the moment, she entered into marvelous and everlasting blessing. We have the same opportunity. And with that said, would you bow your heads, please? Close your eyes that you might think personally about the message you've just heard. And I trust you already have been thinking personally, but now ask yourself, is there something that the Spirit of God is saying very directly to your heart in light of the words you've just heard? Is there someone here in this room who has never yet really given your heart to Jesus Christ? You're one of those individuals who've been hanging on saying, no, got to take care of myself first. Got to get my own way. Maybe you've been thinking that somehow the way you want your life to go would be better than how God would want it to go. Can you today confess the foolishness of that? Can you relinquish the grip on your own life and say, God, I'm yours. I know I need you as Savior. I gladly open my heart to you as Lord. Dear God, here and now, I do receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life. As a believer, is there something you're hanging on to? And maybe God's been dealing with you for a long time, telling you it's time to let it go. Time to stop that. Time to change that. Time to get out of that. But for whatever whatever reason, you keep saying, no, no, got to be my way. Can you not today say, God, no longer my way. I want your way. I know it's best. I know it's right. I know you love me. And I know that's the way I need to live. Let's be those who really do let go and let God do what he wants to do in our lives. Father in heaven, thank you for the message. Thank you for the wonderful truth of scripture. Thank you for how you speak to our hearts. Help us to respond to you as we should. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We have a song.